Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on today's episode, Keegan DeWitt. He's a film composer who's done some, has some great collaborations with directors like Alex Ross Perry and Aaron Katz and um, Brett Haley. And his next movie is uh, All the Bright Places. It comes out uh, on Netflix this upcoming Friday. Um, but first off, what I watched this week, um, I had a war movie week with my dad, where uh, my dad, as a as a boomer, um, you might imagine, uh, he, he loves his, he loves his war movies. Um, we had a conversation, um, a few weeks ago where he was telling stories about my grandpa who, uh, was, was in Europe during World War II. And I started realizing that my dad's love of, uh, war movies comes from this one area that he could, that he could actually worship his dad, um, specifically. But it was, it was funny because it, it showed, he and I have had this ongoing conversation the last, uh, maybe year or so because we both like completely opposite ends of the spectrums, uh, what we expect from a war movie and movies in general. And um, I was telling him about the Francois Truffaut quote that uh, all war movies uh, are, there's no such thing as an anti-war movie because they inherently uh, romanticize or, uh, you, you know, inspire more soldiers. Uh, all war movies do in some degree or not. They make it look uh, violent and sexy in some way. And so we start talking about, I start talking about examples that I thought might break it. And I mentioned, you know, come and see, which I don't think he'll ever see. Uh, but I mentioned, um, Criterion posted this essay from David Simon, the creator of The Wire recently, where he talked about Passa Glory. And he, that was his pick. He mentioned the Truffaut quote in the essay, but he mentioned that because Passa Glory fixates so much on the bureaucracy of the generals that there's... There's it's on top of Kubrick's bleakness. There's no way you can really look at that movie as in any way pro-war. So, Dad and I got together this week at one point and finally got around to watching it. And um, my dad, after finishing it, his, all he could really say was uh, uh, he he liked it, but he just like thought it'd be more action. So later in the week, he picked a one that he didn't want me to see. Not so much that it's an anti-war movie, but just a war movie that he's he likes a lot. That he's been buying these very um movies i've never heard of off ebay and he found this one called the lost battalion and it's this a and e movie directed by russell mulcahy uh he's directed like um highlander and the shadow and uh i think one of the resident evil movies um and it was an a and e tv movie starring ricky schroeder and um it it's basic well one it's from 2001 so it's very fashionably um trying to be saving private ryan for world war one but on a a and e tv budget so there's a lot of uh um you know film you know film flashes and a shaky cam and massive incoherence of uh breaking the line no one knows direction wise what, what's happening um it also tv movie has just some of the horrious war uh, cliches that like uh you know the guy from brooklyn talks to the guy from montana and finds out they all like after all um but it's it, it's funny how pass a glory from 57 was way more modern than the 2001 lost battalion movie um uh, but there's some there's some flashy interesting stuff in it not that i mean just a ripoff of saving private ryan is still a ripoff of saving private ryan there's still going to be some some interesting inspirations in there and uh it did kind of feel like a movie that maybe maybe tony soprano would really be watching um but the oddest movie of the week is a movie i didn't see for the first time it was my third time seeing it but um it's the first time i got to see it intact i drove down to the bell court as i mentioned in the uh, interview with uh, keegan dewitt to see the keep michael mann's misbegotten second uh, theatrical feature which um is I had the speaker beforehand gave a very impassioned speech about how it being a flawed movie and then he talked in detail about the novels based on the script and a lot of the the holes are in the story and I and if you've ever seen the keep it, it appears up on streaming uh platforms occasionally that's where I first saw it but um none of like this is I got to see a 35 millimeter print of it with the original Tangerine Dream score and the Tangerine Dream score is one of those late 70s early 80s issues where um changing copyright laws means they've had to uh, keep the movie out of print on top of the fact that michael mann's all but uh you know disowned the movie and when you see the movie you understand why um it's and it's funny because i i hadn't seen the movie probably in 10 years and watching it again i forgot i for some reason i thought michael mann had final cut on it 
And so I thought some of the bizarre, and I mean bizarre choices made in this movie were on purpose. And all what ended up happening was um, the movie got taken away from him. Uh, Michael Mann, who's a notorious spender of big budget movies, and, and you know, he redevelops movies while he's still shooting them. Um, this was a big budget fantasy movie that um, they pulled the plug on him pretty early or at least ca capped him off. So a lot of his early ideas he had to go through with intact, including he worked with a special effects uh, artist named Wally Veers who had worked on 2001 and Superman and he died two weeks into post-production. And so a lot of the effects, which sh like there's, there's, there's a sketch of a great effect in there and there's a really interesting movie. And cause the thing that is this movie is massively incoherent. You have a scene where the main character, as as the guy who um, spoke before the film pointed out, the main Scott Glenn hero of the movie and the the creature villain behind it don't have names until four minutes before until the movie ends, and the hero um, has a, a tantric sex scene with uh, the only woman in the movie after maybe exchanging three lines of dialogue and just meeting her in the middle of the movie. Um, but all that being said, this is Michael Mann. Uh, kind of doing uh, a style that I have a odd fascination with this um, early 80s Ridley the Scott Brothers style like this is the thing the, the whenever the um, uh, British uh, commercials or music video style kind of came to America it involves a lot of smoke and hard light it's the aesthetic that really influenced MTV and the few features that come from it like Blade Runners like the the biggest uh, the best of all of them but things like the hunger or even legend this is Michael Mann attempting to do that and there are some instances where you see the possibilities that it could have a, a more complete version might have been interesting at work but the one thing you can say about any Michael Mann movie the, the most unengaged one is that there's not any lack of craft here and clearly like the money the time the resources all left him and it's unfortunate uh as mentioned uh by the the guy that spoke early in the movie so hopefully there's there's a movie a documentary making of uh being kickstarted right now that hopefully might come out this year i am really interested in seeing it because the keep um it's i can't recommend it i can't recommend it but it's pretty fascinating <laughs> Keegan DeWitt is on today's show and I'm going to keep it short just because I think a lot of the reasons uh, it's good that he was on here and I was excited to have him on here we talk about actually in the interview I'm a big fan of his work but not just his work but his collaborations the he's doing some really interesting stuff right now with uh, Alex Ross Perry and um, Aaron Katz and Brett Haley and he's as I mentioned earlier he has a movie coming up on Netflix this week all the bright places which he says is his best work with Brett Haley and as I go to in the conversation I am an immense fan of him and Brett Haley's work on a movie called Hearts Beat Loud uh, which was one of my favorite movies uh, for the last few years and one of the things we we come to the, I come to the conclusion talking to him about is the thing I love about his work um, with all these directors is how organically, uh, specifically with Haley and Alex Ross Perry, how organically the music becomes a part of the story, not just thematically, but you know a lot of the Brett Haley movies, including uh, I'll See You in My Dreams and Hearts Beat Loud, like a song that he wrote, Keegan DeWitt wrote becomes a plot point in the movies and an emotional plot point too. So the song's got to be nailed on top of the fact that it's got to organically work into the movie. And he talks about his methods. He came up um, uh, being also a big fan of Aaron Katz's uh, first few movies. Uh, he talks about his pathway to being a composer whenever that wasn't originally what he planned, but um, I'm, I'm giving away the game. Um, just, uh, I hope you enjoy this interview. <laughs> What are you working on today? Today I'm working on a, Quib a Quibi show for a director named Mary Heron, who I've worked with in the past. She did American Psycho, and then we did a film called Charlie Says together. Oh, cool. I mean, uh, what is how's working with Quibi like? Like, I mean, Quibi's fine. It's I, I'm more working on it because I enjoy Mary, and I think it's 
I, you know, I try and make a priority out of working, you know, at as many female collaborators and especially female directors as I can find. Uh, Quibi's, you know, 10 minute long things that you watch on your phone. So I'm sure you can imagine how most of humanity feels about that. Who's creating art. I mean, is it, is it wall, more wall to wall music or is it just exactly the same in 10 minute spurts? Uh, it's a lot of music because of the nature of what the show is. It's sort of like a horror thriller. Um, but, uh, it's, yeah, it's fine. It's just like, I, you know, it, it's the whole thing. It, it's sort of like a trap door to get into talking about it. Cause it's like, I sort of disagree with the idea in general of creating content for a 10 minute mobile platform, you know? I, um, I know I've been talking a lot on here about it, that ambivalence, because like, I mean, you, uh, you have children, right? Yeah. Do they, or do you let them use smartphones? No. I mean, they'll use an iPad maybe once a week on the weekend for like an hour, but they're playing like educational games to learn how to code or, or like do math and oh, things like that. Very cool. My nephew's doing coding right now. Um, no, it's just, you see kids how they're ingesting content right now and i don't know if that's one like pandora's box might be open and uh, but at the same time like like you said anyone who's doing creative work right now just really is not interested in any of that um so um, i mean it's also like you got to remember that for the creative industry like especially for composers like budgets have just gotten so stingy and but the expectation is to deliver the same quality of product you know and then when you shrink the the um, length of the episodes, of course, they want to shrink the fees even more. So it just kind of gets to the point where it's like, the only reason I'm really doing this project in general is because of Mary and because I believe in her and I'd like to continue working with her. How long, you is, know? how long is the total content or the whole show? It's like 120 minutes. I mean, that's the thing. It's like when they're trying to negotiate it with you, it's like, oh, it's only 10 minutes long. And you're like, right, but there's 12 of them. I can do the math. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's supposed to add up and to make like a feature in in ten minute increments. Yeah, but they are acting like it's not. Like they're just being like, "Oh, it's easy." Like, "Oh, the episodes are ten minutes. It's nothing." You know, because they're thinking about it, pricing it out like it's like a TV show where you're getting paid per length of episode, pretty much. I guess they're technically still a startup. So, but um, so um, you're from Portland. Yeah, I grew up in Portland. Um, how long were you, how long did you stay in Portland? Uh, I went to a, like a fine arts high school there or like, you know, sort of a, a crunchy alternative high school there that until I was 17 when I graduated. And then I went to New York to go to film conservatory and later actor conservatory. Were your, uh, were your parents moviegoers? Uh, yeah. I mean, my, it was more than my parents were overall supportive of the arts and supportive of me kind of pursuing what I wanted, you know. Were you much of a moviegoer early on or was it more music based? I mean, I always did music, but more as like a hobby. You know, I played in bands in junior high and stuff like that. And I always kind of like made my own music. But music for me, honestly, was always more like kind of, you know, like somebody keeps a journal or something like that. Like I would like record myself on a four track or do it. You know, it was that kind of thing where it was very um, it was more like for my own personal kind of chronicling of stuff and my own experimentation really like the thing that I was always super passionate about was screenwriting and playwriting and, and film, you know? So when I was going to high school, I was <clears throat> had a really great writing mentor there who was essentially teaching me. And one of my good friends that I still work with now, this director, Aaron Katz, we both were in the same writing class and had the same writing mentor together. Were you guys the same uh, age? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big Aaron Katz fan. I mean, that's how I first actually came to your music too, but um, yeah. So, so what were the movies uh, growing up that you were into or that got you into uh, interested in screenwriting and playwriting? I mean, the big movies that really like kind of expanded my brain as a teenager, like early teenager, were um, Thin Red Line by Terrence Malick and Boogie Nights by um, Paul Thomas Anderson. I think that those both sort of like set these weird like lane demarcations in my world. You know, it was like, OK, one's like highly stylized, very much like one gear of filmmaking and the other was like couldn't be more different you know but they both came out essentially within a year of one another and i just remember it being like a highly formative moment for my cinematic brain just kind of 
especially Thin Red Line. You know, like I think that Boogie Nights like fed more into me as a teenager being like, whoa, yeah, okay, this crazy long tracking shots and everything's over the top and it's all driven by music. And, you know, like that was very um, high school brain. But I remember sitting in the theater and watching Thin Red Line and just sort of being like, you know, it's one of those things where you experience something that you're like, whoa, this is way more adult and wise and beyond me than I could have ever understood, you know? Did you pay much attention to Hans Zimmer score in it? No, I didn't care about the score at all. I mean, honestly, I've only started listening to scores more concertedly in the past, like, five years, you know? Really? For me, it was, for me, it was more about how they were telling the story, you know? Okay. Do you remember... Uh, I asked everyone this question. Do you remember your first movie? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I remember... Yeah, I don't know. I just remember really being obsessed with Indiana Jones as a kid. You know, like, I definitely loved, like, all these early adventure movies. But even then, like, I don't, you know, I, it always seems so weird to me when people were like, I love, like, movie soundtracks. I listen to movie soundtracks all the time. It just seems so strange to me. Um, uh, and even now, like, it's really hard for me to get into that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I, I get into it more when it's, like... Um, more sort of modern contemporary stuff like you know obviously johnny greenwood and mika levy and that kind of stuff that's more to me like interesting and more listenable you know but i it would be hard for me i mean i really love and respect obviously everything that like john williams and all these people are doing but i probably wouldn't sit and want to listen to that score for me so what were the bands like when you were in a, in a teenager i mean i listened to a lot of punk rock <laughs> so for me it was like the clash and minor threat and 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 a lot of this kind of political punk rock growing up that was a big part of my life okay. um, and then uh and then that slowly started is started to morph kind of over time you know like and to and uh, i think that like my my junior high early high school world was all skateboarding punk rock straight edge music just crazy as loud as possible straight then, edge music yeah, I've definitely listened to a lot of Earth Crisis and crazy things like that. There's a yeah. lot of parallels. Like between um, my, my hometown actually has a bizarrely decent punk scene and uh, for being such a small town. And uh, between yeah. that and uh, Thin Red Line, just wow, there's uh, <laughs> man. I mean, honestly, I wish that I would have spent a lot of those early formative years not listening to Earth Crisis. No offense to Earth Crisis, but there was just. I do wish that early on I had been a little bit more expansive in what I was listening to, but it is what it is. I mean, back then I was also like making, I think even then I was trying to really dig deeper. So I was, you know, even though I was going to see Rancid live, I was listening to like Desmond Decker and, and, and Operation Ivy and always trying to like, sort of like dig a little, like one or two generations earlier and figure out what was getting those people excited about making music. Um, and then, you know, later on I started, I think that like, once I discovered Oasis and later Blur, especially Damon Albarn, that really was like kind of opened my world into a much more melodic like, oh, shit, this is OK. I understand this now. Like and then that started to gear me more towards like the idea of like songwriting and like the power of a song and then early U2 and things like that. Like those were things like later in high school where I was like very much into um, Rattle and Hum, the U2 film. And things like that just starting to re and, and you know during that like my entire like late high school was like brit pop u2 that kind of world and then once i kind of got out of school and stuff then i started to turn more towards kind of through following damon's world and then gorillas and stuff like that discovering like little dragon and getting more into dance music and and stuff and then that that's sort of what informed my like band world was more like being fans of of stuff like you know wild beasts and little dragon and, and stuff like that so did you start out on guitar kind of like i i essentially like as a little kid my parents tried to get me to learn music multiple ways and one was guitar and the other was piano sadly both my guitar and piano teachers were more like hey dude let me teach you how to play a pop song that you like on this thing you know rather than teaching me how to formally read and write music and stuff so that's still like i i I'm slower than most composers in the world of like traditional reading and writing of music, but um, but I kind of started on both. 
Okay. Well, it just seems like there's there's a lot of composers out there that uh, movie composers who are really slow to get into doing like Tom York. I know was saying that he couldn't write music, and that was a big reason he didn't jump into until Suspiria. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's I always try and you know leverage things that seem like a weakness into something that's more of a strength. You know, so it's like for me because that's not my number one strength as a composer. I try to approach things more as a filmmaker and more as a sound designer and more as like, you know, I, I, it's like, although there's a highly technical side to something like a, what a cinematographer does with in, in terms of balancing F stops and exposures and so on and so forth. At the same time, they're dealing with like more abstract concepts of like how to use light to tell a story and create demarcate space and things in the frame. And so I'm trying to like sort of funnel that more as a composer and be like, well, I'm dealing with like light and shades, but they just happen to be musical light and shades rather than like, you know, it's like I, I'm very much not like a, J, a John Williams type composer where it's like, here's this melody and then let me modulate it and let me like transpose it into a new key and then subvert it here. Like I do a certain amount of that, but for me, it's not what gets me really excited or inspired as a composer. It's more being one part of many to create a, a film, you know? Okay. So uh, Aaron Katz was one of the first people you worked with? Yeah, I mean, me and Aaron were just buddies in high school. So we were both being like, holy shit, Boogie Nights, and oh shit, Thin Red Line, and getting excited about all this stuff. And so we were just kind of feeding off each other. I actually went to film school a year before him because I graduated a year early. And so there would be a lot of stuff of like, you know, I'd be calling him from school being like, oh, my God, we just watched this Fred Wiseman documentary. And then he'd be like, you know, running and renting it and then calling me back the next day and talking about it. Or he'd be discovering something and calling me. And so we really like started to kind of like fall in love with discovering films and digging into the world of all these different filmmakers together. Where'd you, you know? go to school? I went to SUNY Purchase in New York. They've got like a, a conservatory program for filmmaking there. Okay. Um. So um, he came out a year later? Yeah, he came out a year later and went to North Carolina School of the Arts where, ironically, like his, a bunch of his roommates are, were, we kind of all just became friends. You know, I would come and visit him at school or somehow we just all got involved. And that's where I met Chad Hardigan, who's another person that I made films with. And later, um, Brett Haley, who also went to North Carolina School of the Arts. So I didn't know that. We just, yeah, so we all just kind of got connected early on and, and came up together. Okay, so um, then, um, so Dance Party USA was your first feature score, or was was there a doc before then? No, I think that was it. I mean, and that's not even really a score. It's just like Aaron called me and was like, hey, my film got into South by Southwest. You do music. Could you try and do music to it? <laughs> so, I mean, at that point, I, w I had no idea of, of – film composing or wanting to be a film composer i just kind of like you know tinkered around and did some stuff on my laptop and sent it to him you know so that was very early early on so was bands and film going the priority when you were first in new york yeah well i mean when i first went to new york i was in film school so at that point i thought i was going to be you know writing and directing films and then i later went to acting conservatory but that was more because i was trying to sort of understand the craft of acting as a director and stuff it, but I was always kind of doing music, you know, as my like, like I was saying, like it was kind of my private thing that I enjoyed doing. And I guess I was sort of making a half hearted attempt to do music stuff, but never really thinking about it like that. And, and certainly not thinking of myself really as a film composer or anything like that. Um, it really took cold weather, the next film that we did together, and then a couple other things to start to sort of take root where I was like, oh, this makes sense. Like, I don't really enjoy the world of like, you know, band songwriter world. And I don't totally know if I want to be like a director of films, at least at that point. And so I was like, this is kind of like the perfect harmony, harmony of these two things where I can like very much be a filmmaker, but do it with music, you know? Well, it's interesting and, to hear you say that because, I mean, I like Dance Party USA. Uh, I watched a little bit of it again last night. I hadn't seen it in years, but um, Quiet City is actually, was a really big uh, inspiration. And I mean, I guess I have I forget how much music you had in there, but I mean, is, I, I thought there was more than there was in Dance Party. Yeah, I don't I don't know, but that I, I guess you're, it's a good point. In that Quiet City was the beginning of me sort of understanding minimalist piano music and being excited, and that was like essentially the beginning of me being like, huh, 
film composing. What is this? You know, okay. and exploring people like, you know, Michael Nyman and Steve Reek and other people like that. But just kind of being like, OK, this is interesting. It's trying to wrap my head around what kind of film composer I could be. Mm. You know, when did uh, when did you start messing around with synths? Uh, I don't know, honestly. I mean, I think that it's like I've always been drawn to the computer because it's super flexible and I can like really manipulate sounds and really, you know, I can collage create things. I, like I really am like a collage oriented composer where I like to be able to take things and turn them inside out and reverse them and re-record them and, you know, build things out like I would a scrapbook or something like that. Um, Did you ever do much uh, editing in film school? I did a little bit of editing, yeah. I mean, and I certainly learned a lot about it through my film studies classes and stuff as I started to learn about the history of filmmaking and stuff. But, um, but yeah. Well, it's uh, we'll get to this later, as, uh, but uh, I'm kind of back in, in, into like like doing more, or just playing around with musical stuff now. And a lot of the reasons I'm getting to it is just because uh, as an editor, I know a nonlinear timeline. And a lot of the software available to us just seems like doing sound design sometimes. And it's, and I can look at it as opposed to a performance as something I can just lay out. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that the, it's like, that, you know, that goes further to talking about like composing more as a filmmaker than as like a strict um, music theory kind of place in terms of just being like... Uh, Oftentimes, like, uh, I'm not sitting just writing that, like, lead melody and being like, well, what happens when I throw these chords beneath it? And what happens if I change it around here? It's more like really getting in the computer and just creating, like, a folder full of crazy different ideas and then throwing that up against picture and being like, oh, this is interesting. You know what I mean? Like, this this sort of brings something to life. I mean, I've got, I've become more more traditional now as I kind of, you know, my skills evolve and I, and I get better at what I do. I have more draw. I think it's funny that I sort of like started at such an improvisational place. And now I'm kind of yearning to do more um, kind of like themes and, and development of themes and so on and so forth. But um, I don't know. It's interesting. It's uh, for me, as I move forward, it's always a, a concerted effort to try and keep a certain amount of the amateurism and the improvisational instinctive stuff. That is what, was so critical to my curiosity and passion about things early on while still really, really working every day to expand my craft and get better at doing things like themes and stuff like that. Because I feel like, you know, it's easy to be cynical about, you know, a director being like, well, it'd be great to have like a, you know, Susie's theme and Tim's theme. And then when they come together, they interplay and you're sort of like, oh, geez, you know, (laughs) but then you do it and 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 you get in there and you start laying these things into picture and you realize that there's a reason why it's so prevalent is because it's an extremely powerful tool and you can if you do it correctly and with taste and and with real love it can be something that's extremely powerful it can sometimes be so conceptual and a crutch too though where where directors just really stuck on it and they think it's solving a problem and all it's it's not but um so are you um so are you, I mean, I guess it sounds like the arc is that do you, were you, do you just kind of like send your tracks to, to the uh, editor and director and let them place it in when you're just getting your first ideas or have you, are you doing more spotting session uh, for spotting sessions now? It really depends on the nature of the relationship, right? So if it's me and Aaron that, or me and Chad or the, any of these friends that I've really done a bunch of films with, it's super wide open and it's like, how exciting can it be? Let's do something crazy. And it's just like me experimenting and us getting together and getting excited about it. Whereas, you know, now where, cause of where I am in my career, there's a lot more traditional things where I'm hired onto a show and there's 10 different producers. And when we go to meet, it's like a bunch of different personalities in the room. And 80% of my job is navigating and managing all those different personalities and opinions and 20% is composing, you know, I don't mean that in a cynical, like, Oh, and the composing's bad. I just mean, you know, it's a different. No, I'm, sh- I'm shaking my head and just post this. Like it's, it's like you said, the amateurism is what you're going with. And like, I, I've always struggled with this idea of like, and when you growing up in love with film, no one told you that, uh, you probably should have gotten a second degree in psychoanalysis. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard, but honestly, I, I'm. It's still like a matter of, uh, 
even then you can subvert the idea of themes. I mean, use them to your power. I mean, it's like uh, now as we're working, as I work on a project and, and there are 10 personalities in the room, one of the benefits of having themes and having a structure and saying like, these are our themes that we're using is if suddenly somebody wants to like turn the whole turnip truck over with some crazy idea, you can be like, well, this is not, or, you know, or if they suddenly like have some crazy idea, you can be like, well, we put a lot of work into establishing these themes. Let's learn how to work within this. You know what I mean? Like you can use those as a, you know, for me, it's like, it, it helps scope creep. Cause I can be like, well, it's sort of weird that why in the like fourth reel would we just suddenly have a brand new, totally unrelated piece of music that doesn't, is not relating to these characters. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I didn't mean to completely bad mouth like a bunch of producers because the other thing I found, especially if I'm not in charge anymore, is how much more faith I have in the collaboration. You always want to make everyone happy and you want these different personalities and ideas, especially if they're smart. Like you want more smart people on a movie giving you ideas on trying to make you see what the movie could be too. Um, well, I think the thing that, that is the biggest takeaway is that, and I, I have had to learn to do this as a collaborator in general, and I wish that more producers would do this. And I think the thing that you're sort of hinting at that gets lost as soon as you have 10 people in a room is remembering that you've hired people who are extremely talented to do what they're good at. Yeah. And you've got to figure out how to let them do what they're good at. And often that gets lost. You know, it's like when it's always good to remember that sometimes the most powerful thing you can do as a collaborator is just not say anything and not have any notes. You know, sometimes notes are incredibly great and really good. Most of the time they are, but you know, it's like for me, sometimes I get to, I'll, I'll get to a point on bad projects or troublesome projects where I'll have to say like, uh, guys, it's hard for me to really say right now because you've pushed me so far out of the element of what I know how to do, you know? Um, and sometimes that's good. Sometimes I find myself there and I'm like, wow, I've done work that I would have never done otherwise. But other times I find myself being like, I, I'm sort of in a zone where it's hard for me to have any opinion about this work that I'm doing because I've sort of let myself get bullied by these 10 different people and I'm not doing the work that they hired me to do anymore. You know, that's interesting, especially like I mean, how many uh, projects are you bouncing usually uh, right now at one time? I mean, now it's I mean. Yeah. Talk about the like looking back on the days when I was great. It's like, you know, when I did when I did Cold Weather, it was the only film I did that year. <laughs> you know, and it was great. And it was the it was the only thing I thought about where now it's like at one time I'm working on probably three different TV shows. I'm a rap. I'm in the tail ends of one movie in the meat of a second movie and probably getting sort of like intense emails from the movie that's about to happen saying, hey, you know, here's what we want. Here's what we're thinking. When can we have some of your attention span? You know? Wow. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I just, it's hard for me. I mean, I guess I can maybe picture it, but I mean, editors obviously rarely are doubling up. So, um, yeah. What were the big changes on uh, cold weather when you first started really seeing this as a, uh, the, just everything coming together with what you want to do? Or was it just, was it a bigger budget? Did you uh, have a more expanded things you were working with? I think it was more, I mean, I don't know, it was like, gosh, it's probably more than 10 years ago now. But at that point, it was like, it was just our first grown-up movie, you know? Like, with Quiet City and Dance Party, we were just sort of like kids making movies like you would make them. You know what I mean? Like, it was the college. It wasn't even, like, film school-level movies, almost. It was, like, running gun, shooting it, like, cutting it on your laptop in your apartment kind of thing. Where this was, like, you know, we had our production offices and the editing suite and all that stuff. And you just, you sort of have that thing where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm serious now. I'm a composer. Um, but it was great. And then we got to, like, really sit and, like, score two scenes. And I, you know, I was, like... I sort of had my room next to Aaron's room and I would like come up with something and take it over and we'd watch it and be like, Oh, that's cool. Let's do these changes. And I jump back in my room and back and forth. So that was really nice in that it was sort of a glimpse at what was to come in terms of being like, Oh, this is like a grown ass composing process and we're really working through it. And it's, it's really exciting, you know? Yeah. I mean, like part of what I was thought was inspiring about Quiet City is that that it wasn't a, which, you know, quotation mark real movie. And like that, I mean, I think I know I'm always trying to get back to that, trying to make the, the fingerprints and the amateurism. Like it's always it's always something like I feel like I'm struggling to try to constantly get into it. Um, well, totally. I mean, that's but that that continues on. It's like it like even on, you know, me and Chad Hardigan are finishing a movie right now. And that's, you know we came up with a score on that that we were really proud of, but it's a little bit of a challenging score 
And, you know, we've had to go to bat with the producers just to say, like, hey, please give us the bandwidth to, like, bring this thing into the world how it is, because we think that, it, like you're saying, it it resembles, like, our first instinct rather than, like, how can we make sure that this movie sells? Can, can you talk about that score what, and what you're doing with yeah. it? I mean, it's 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 more that it's just the the choices that we made with it. Like, you know, it's like in, in general with a movie uh producers have cons- this is not isolated to this project but uh you know producers are always worried about pacing and about um um i don't know it's it, you know like to put to talk about it in the context of a different movie right like um beale street i think is a great example of a score where it's like it's moody and it's beautiful and as soon as you like tar- the first scenes of beale street you just feel transported into this world and like suspended and and, and it's because uh, obviously the filmmaking is beautiful, but the score is so beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, and I could very easily see bad producers being like, uh, you know, like, ah, oh, it's a period piece. Like, where, oh, and there's like black people in this movie. And like, we want to be like super woke white producers. So like, why is there not like funk music? And like, how can we make it feel super like vibey and paced out? You know what I mean? And it's just that kind of thing where you have to fight for those choices to say like, no we want this film from the very first frame to feel like almost a dream, you know, okay. and those things are really hard to, to fight for as a composer. And I'm sure as an editor too, you know, well, I know I've, I've, I've complained to other editors about how if a, product, a post is going bad, that we might be on the chopping block to be fired. But if I'm being honest, it's more, especially with producers, composers are the ones that usually are on the chopping block first. Cause if, when no one can analyze what's wrong with a movie, the first thing they're like, let's change the score. Yeah. I mean, I just had a film literally two weeks ago where some producer and director called me who are friends and they're like, hey, can you watch this? Like, we're thinking of firing our composer. Um, Can you give me like you just give us your advice about it? And I watched it and I was like, honestly, I mean, they're my friends, so I could be honest. But I was just like, your first 15 minutes need to be five minutes long. You know, it's like this is an editorial thing. Like, you just don't have the footage, you know, and like. It was just like that kind of thing where it's like the, no composer can fix the fact that you're the first 15 minutes of your movie have like two four minute long dialogue driven scenes that have mild, you know, pacing problems. Not for it's like that's natural. That happens with every movie. But it just so happens that in this case, it's in the first like 15 minutes. And so those things can be difficult where it's like no composer can fix that unless you just suddenly want to have him like put like shakers in like some cheesy ass broad music beneath it you know which just then, up the like, tempo artificially yeah so it's kind of like a lot of times i feel like and that's not to sh- like say that composers don't you know shouldn't uh their music shouldn't be revisited at some point but i mean as i think everybody figures out in this business like if you made it to the point where you're regularly getting hired you're pretty confident in what you can do and it's just a matter of people effectively communicating with you do you, you know, to get you there. Do you feel comfortable getting editorial uh, suggestions or is that a case-by-case basis? If I'm on the project, I always sort of try and take the tack that, like, it's one thing if I were speaking directly to the editor in isolation, I could be like, what do you, like, what's going on with this scene? Like, it seems like, God, if we could get from the car to the house sooner or something like that, you know, because then it's like two peers talking. But uh, I always take the tack in general, if there's producers or other people around that I, unless it's someone explicitly asked or it's really an important thing, I'm not going to comment in a way that makes, creates more work or more stress for somebody else on the project. That's cool. Maybe I learned that because that happens to me a lot where like someone will yeah. just offhandedly be like, Hey, I'm not the composer, but like, what happens if we like score this eight minute long, super complicated scene? I know we probably won't use it, but let's just try. <laughs> and I'm like sitting over there being like, dude, you just created so much work for me. You know what? I think I've been really lucky in that regard where, um, like, the extra work sometimes, I'm like, ah, eh, fine. You know, I'm an editor. I'll try to throw everything on the wall and see what sticks. But I've really only had, like, maybe once or twice where a collaborator, somebody else in another department said something that was actually very personal about, like, I don't think he's doing it right or something like that. I've only had that happen once, and I was so offended by it. I think I've been lucky in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's, it's hard because you've, you realize that so much of effective collaborations is just the people, 
You know, it's like really with bad movies or troublesome movies, you can make them pretty darn good if all the people have pro attitudes and are considerate and thoughtful about how they speak to people and stuff. It's just like, you know, like we said before, like so much of the working in the industry is just navigating intense, rude, or sort of like tricky personalities and figuring out how to kind of still create good work out of all that. Yeah, or passionate or alternately in, in different ones. Um, so how did you, uh, how did you hook up with Alex Ross Perry? Again, how did you Chad and Aaron? They're just all, they, yeah, they were just kind of like all friends through film festival world and having met and, you know, just common friends. And so when Alex was doing, um, God, what was the first thing we did? Oh, listen up Philip. He was like, Alex has got a movie. You should meet Alex. And I just remember, you know. That, that Alex, like knowing about Alex just from a very peripheral place, I was like, he seems like a very opinionated guy. <laughs> um, and then we met and we just got along really well. It's a weird friendship that we have. I think that it's like, I really defer to him and respect what he does because I think what he does is so singular and interesting. And he really extends me a lot of respect. And it's like, we just always have great collaborations. I mean, mainly because... He has the one that he has and him and Chad and a lot of these people. And maybe it's because they're they come from friendships first rather than just meeting on a professional level. But they all have this one thing, which is they get to the composing phase that involves music and they're willing to be brave enough to be like, this music could totally change my entire movie in a way that I didn't expect it to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and like. I, I, I never blame filmmakers for this as I totally understand where they're coming from. But a lot of filmmakers, you know, spend the entire time having to fight off bad opinions and pushy people and, you know, rude producers or whoever it is. And so by the time they get to the composing the music part, they're so close to being done that they're like, I know how my music's going to be I, I, or my movie's going to be. And I just want to get it done now. You know what I mean? And so it's really hard to get them to do something crazy or revolutionary or really wild with the music. They all they sometimes will say that they want to do that, but then it becomes quickly clear that they don't where with Alex and Chad and Aaron, these guys, they're really like, it's, it's yet another exciting chapter of like, wow, this could totally change things. You know, the movie could feel totally different by the time we're done with this, which is really exciting. Do you have any strong opinions on temp music? Uh, I mean, it's, it's more that it's just always better. And I'm sure editors agree with this and filmmakers agree. Like everybody agrees with this, which is, it would be awesome to always have music before you start cutting the movie or before you even start shooting the movie, you know, just like from script phase, it would always be great. Sadly, it doesn't work that way because of scheduling and everybody like gets busy. Um, but yeah, temp music is hard. Temp music is really hard, but I sort of reserve judgment to say, to hate on it explicitly because I, I just don't see how editors are supposed to do their jobs without it. They, I, I, you know, I respect editors who can do their jobs without it up to a certain degree, you know? Um, Cause I know a lot of editors really pride themselves on saying like, I want to cut dry to know that it works and then start bringing in music, which I appreciate. Yeah. Uh, it's more just that everybody uses the same temp music, you know? And yes, it, once it's in there, it's really hard to get rid of it. The last, know? the last project I worked on, my friend, uh, I was, I was just helping out a friend and he, um, I started realizing half the reason he's doing good work is because he's, uh, keeping a bead on scores and he's, he's burying up his, uh, his, uh, what temps he puts in. He's not using the exact same one because our, the assembly we worked on, um, use some very recognizable ones and it just immediately threw you out of the movie completely. Mm-hmm. Well, and more than anything, it's just like, once you hear under the skin or a scene, you can't create another cue that's going to not be like that, but still achieve the same thing. It's really hard, you know, that's such a credit to her work on that. Or same with, you know, Cliff Martinez and every single documentary ever made, you know, it's just like these things are like, they're incredible scores and they're great. But like, you know, for example, uh, I worked on a doc recently where it was like, it was very clear that they had a great idea of what the music would be. And it spanned these, a bunch of modern composers, both, you know, more formal composers and then film composers and classical composers. And it was just like such a thrill to work on. It was like, oh yeah, not all temp is bad if it can be really expansive and exciting and interesting. Cause then it, it's, it's more when, you know, you get the film that they've tempted all with one score, you know, <laughs> what's funny. You mentioned under the skin because, uh, so 
I remember um, I used cold weather as a temp on one movie, and what was weird was the director put it in the project, and I, I hadn't really heard, uh, really wasn't that familiar with the music, and what, what had problem was we had different tones going back and forth, and so yeah. we alternated between under the skin and cold weather and it never tonality solved the movie and was yeah. funny was when i later came to uh, listen to or saw queen of earth i was like oh that music would have been so much better <laughs> yeah it's i mean it's so hard i don't envy editors at all in that way you know but it is something that i i always try and do which is like forge a relationship with the editor because it is so make or break. It's like the editor can get you a job out of thin air by placing your music in there and proving how great it can work against picture. But if you have an editor who does not care about having a relationship with you and is trying to just please other people, it can be extremely hard to succeed at your job. You know, because I've had certain jobs where you're sending music and it's like just not getting in the cut. Or if it's getting in there, it's getting placed in a weird way or something like that. So, I, I try to really like forge a, a relationship with the, the editor because, you know, we're doing a lot of the same work in a weird way. So um, back to the Queen of Earth score, was that uh, was that under the skin influenced or because I mean, there, the interesting thing to me was the tonalities in there and just uh, like it seemed like you were, it's a big I had a surge under the skin at that point. I think, it you know, that whole score really just sprung from those bells that I had found. Mm that it were so interesting and atonal and had so much character. And like, for me as a composer, anytime you can find a singular instrument that can achieve that much depth and dynamic with such simple performance, you're like, whoa, this is powerful. You know, because I spend so much other time as a composer layering this thing and that, and I've got three violins and all the cellos and stuff. And so it's like, it can be really exhilarating when you find like a single bell that just like literally playing anything on it and just doing it even a bell hit every 30 seconds you're like whoa this is interesting always, you know always trying to keep it as simple as possible um so yeah. so when did you move to nashville i'm a i don't i was probably like 25 at the time i just i had moved to new york to you know do filmmaking got into filmmaking and um and acting school and by the time i finished all that stuff I spent maybe a year or so where I was just doing what everybody, in, you know, who's like 24, 25 in New York does, which is like hustle to make money and pay your rent. And I just had a moment where I was like, I'm never going to accomplish what I want to do here because to be able to afford to live here, I'm having to work like a full time job and do it. You know, I just was like I felt myself slowly being sucked down that path to. 10 years later, looking back and being like, oh, man, I wish I would have done some of those things I actually wanted to do. But now I manage hotels and restaurants or something. You know what I mean? Like whatever it was. Um, I was going to so, ask what was your day job in New York or day job? I mean, I had a great day job. I worked with this really amazing guy named Eric Good, um, who was like a nightclub guy in the 80s. And we built and opened really cool hotels like the Maritime Hotel and the Bowery Hotel and Lafayette House and all these really interesting places. I mean, it was I was getting to meet really incredible people and 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 get really i mean it was a, a really great way to experience new york um but i just was it was my full-time world you know so at that point i kind of left being like I, you know i'm gonna i don't remember why i think i was just kind of burnt out from being in acting school and film film school for so long that i was like i'm gonna go and do music stuff um with you know the full breadth of my abilities because i knew that it was cheap to be in Nashville, but that Nashville still was like this weird triangulation between New York and LA and that it had a viable entertainment industry where I could really do it. And it just kind of worked out nicely at that point. Um, no, it's funny. Um, when we we're scheduling this, I mentioned I got something going tonight. I'm driving to Nashville to go see a movie at the Belcourt tonight. Oh, nice. Okay. Did you, did you ever go to the Belcourt? Yeah. All the time. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a, um, a special feature on the cold weather DVD of us performing some of the score live at the bell <laughs> Oh, that's super, super cool. Um, so I wanted to move on to, uh, Brett Haley. Your first movie feature with him was I'll see you in my dreams. Yeah. 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 So you guys have, um, did you, the, the song at the end is a significant part of the movie. Like, is that, is he just put a slug in the script saying you're going to write something or how does that work out? He just kind of was like, man, it'd be great if you could write something. <laughs> but it would, you know, it was, it was mainly because at that point in my career, I was like 
both doing film composing but also writing songs and was in my band and stuff so he was kind of like well it'd be great to get a song for the end credits and then we just sort of started a a habit of that if that makes any sense but it i mean it's the one that he plays at the end on the ukulele isn't it oh right yeah yeah so uh sorry this is my bad memory that <laughs> i mean he i guess we knew that we had to have the song so we kind of you know composed it for that but we've continued to do that i mean there's original song on the hero and then there's a song i guess there isn't a song for all the bright places but then there is a song in this new film that we just finished called sort of like a rock star okay well i do the, the one of the big reasons i wanted to talk to you is and i, I you know every once in a while on the podcast i do this like volcanic like uh geeking out on a certain movie but hearts beat yeah. out was just blew my mind when i saw it i adore awesome. it yeah and especially the sequence i was raving to all my friends i was like this is the sequence of the year is that part where um the cue every everything must go plays yeah and I just remember telling him, I was like, this, I mean, some of it was a storytelling, but some of it was your music and just how I knew, you You know, we were talking about motifs earlier, and, you know, a lot of times you want them to just be as simple as possible, but, like, I remember thinking it was like, it was kind of like uh, the uh, end of the second act thing they're always trying to get into musicals, whether it's like, um, oh, uh, the one, was it One Day More in Les Mis, or uh, Little Resistance Blame Canada thing in South Park, where... At the yeah. end of the second act, you're trying to bring everything together, but like in Hearts Beat Loud, that scene just that or that montage just works on so many different levels, and it's where that movie turns into a musical. But at the same time, a totally. simple, such a simple musical. Well, that's actually funny because it's credit also to my collaborator in my band Wild Cub, this guy Jeremy Bullock, who um, we wrote that song together. I wrote a bunch of his songs in the film, and then Jeremy and I worked together on that song, and he came up with that lead guitar line that's on top of that that's, like, such a great thing to send it off. I mean, I also mentioned in, in Spirit of Geeking Out, like, uh, for me hitting early onset uh, midlife crisis, I was, like, trying to play more music. Like, I, play, I hadn't played really since I played in bands in high school and, like, yeah. bought a guitar, and that lick, I, like, made sure to try it's like the first thing i've tried to teach myself to play since high school and <laughs> that's great I, I bugged a bunch of uh composer friends i was like uh what programs am i using i want to start messing around with synths i don't want to start doing stuff like that movie really jump-started of like like music should be an expression in everyone's life to some degree i mean it makes me happy to to hear you say that mainly because i remember when brett was like i want to make a movie about like recording and all this stuff and he was like asking me about like the scene when they record the song for the first time and I just remember to me, I'm like, sounds boring, man. I do that every day. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I'll trust you that I guess it's interesting to watch people record something on the computer. And he's like, oh, yeah, man, people will love this. And I was like, oh, oh OK, that sure. the, the title song is from your EP. There's a solo EP, Nothing Shows. Yeah. So he just took the song and then made a screenplay around it. Yeah, we were at Sundance for um, The Hero, and he was like, it was literally the day after The Hero premiere. This is very on-brand for Brett, but it was like the day after the premiere of The Hero, and he was like, all right, man, so I got the next movie. Like, you know, Hearts Beat Out, he sort of pitched me this idea. And honestly, it sort of hit me at, at a, a time where I had the least amount of interest in writing something like Hearts Beat Loud, mainly just because I had just done two and a half years of touring the entire world with my band, Wild Cub. Like, we had a song on the radio that took us everywhere. And I sort of, like, that entire experience was, like, I loved the people in the band, and I loved the experience of getting to take that song around the world and do all the things that we did with it. But being involved in that part of the music industry, I was just, by the time it was done, I was like, get me out of here, man. I don't want to do this anymore. So when he was like, I literally just sort of like moved to LA and got settled and was really doing film composing full time. And he was like, it was almost like he cracked the door on a time machine and was like, do you want to go back to when you were in the band writing songs, you know? So at first I was kind of like, ah, man, I don't know. And then I started writing stuff and writing more and more. And, and it just helped that in a nice way, it sort of like transitioned me fully out of that world and was allowed me to like begin writing songs again in a way that was more for me in a in a fun way. Is you wild know? so that's like is wild cup still a thing? <laughs> no, wild cup is not a thing anymore. Okay, well, I you know what's funny is I just actually I just started listening to it in prep for uh, this interview, and I remember kind of drawing a line between. Um, kind of the like big anth anthemic uh, choruses that like were kind of one of the things that make you excited and hearts beat loud but it also 
I don't know if like between Let It Snow and uh, the new movie that's playing on Netflix soon. Um, I mean, are, are, is it does it help with like young adult stuff too, or is it something you're trying to creep into all scores, or or is it just a natural expression that comes out? What like the bigger the well, I mean, I think that for me, like I was saying, talking about like really loving Rattle and Hum as a kid. Like that to me was like the power of pop music and how like pop me like a three a three and a half minute song can really like affect you in a deep transformative way and like make you feel like you're like floating above the earth you know yeah and so that was the thing that always that's why Wild Cub exists pretty much it's because I was I was really excited about the idea of capturing this feeling of like just I don't know magic in a bottle for three and a half minutes you know. It really worked out in a very poetic, awesome way for me. And then I like met my soon-to-be wife, wrote a song about her. The song succeeded at radio, and we got to spend like two and a half years traveling the world, meeting people who loved the song because they had also met the person they were. You know what I mean? I was very lucky in that way. Um, but I do think that like for composing and stuff, yeah, I think that like when I talk about like the um, the improvisational aspect of it, it's like that feeling of trying to capture a little bit of that as well. I mean, this film that we have coming out next, whatever it is, the 28th, um, All the Bright Places, I mean, that's definitely the best work that I've done, I think. And it's me and um, me and Brett's best work to date. And that it, it feels like that. I mean, I, I hope that when people watch that film, it really feels both deeply moving, but the music is the kind of thing where like, as soon as you turn it on, you're taken back there immediately. I, uh, uh, the, uh, last movie I worked on, it was really the, just when I was helping out my friend, I, I'm guessing it's the newer one you guys are finishing up, but, uh, the, uh, Brett Haley was in the editing, the same suite we were editing in. Oh, okay. I think it's in, um, oh, I forget the name of it was in, but it was in a kind of, uh, uh, that's a whole other movie called sort of like a rock star. Okay. I mean, Brett is prodigious and in a great way. He's a hustler and constantly making movies. So we're like. We made all the bright all the bright places over a year ago. I think we, we recorded the the chamber orchestra at Capitol this time over a year ago, probably. So it's been waiting to come out because of different scheduling stuff with that for L Fanning, but now it's finally here. We're really excited. Um, I did want to really talk to you about uh, her smell though, because it seems like a reoccurring thing is that with you is that the music really integrates within with the storytelling. But I I, I mean. I mean, how much was he asking? Like, you guys, it was a band, Bully, uh, from Nashville you guys worked with for some of the songs? Oh, yeah. Well, so, you know, kind of per what I was saying about the Hearts Beat Loud stuff, you know, this was pretty recent, almost the same time, shortly after. And Alex was like, do you want to write a bunch of original songs for Her Smell, for the band and Her Smell? And first, I was just like, no, I'm burnt out on writing, writing songs. But also, I was like, this is like a band of women, and it would be cool if we could write, have a, a woman write these songs. So I knew Alicia from Nashville, and I was like, she's perfect for this. So that worked out really amazing, which is great, and she's incredible. Um, and then for the score, yeah, I mean, just all the stuff with me and Alex, like anytime we do a score, I think it's it's similar to like Aaron, right, where like, as soon as we did cold or quiet city and cold weather, we were, we were kind of addicted. Like we realized like, Whoa, score can really be significant in how we make this film. And so each time we approach it, it's not just like, cool. What do you think musically? It's like, dude, what's the music going to be like? This is cool. Like, what are we going to, what are we going to do here? Um, and I think it's very similar with Alex where it's like, because of listen up, fill up and then queen of earth, it was like, Oh, music can really transform this stuff. Um, and so we just had this idea that we wanted it to feel like a panic attack the entire time. You you know? it, it definitely did. Um, <laughs> you, I mean, you're putting your finger on what I like love about you guys' stuff is just because like um, a lot of stuff, when you have these collaborations, like you're getting bolder and bolder, but at the same time, it's organic to the story it's or to the film itself it's not you know it's it's tricky sometimes when you swing for the fences and you try up a crazy temp idea music wise and you know yeah and it's one thing to make a scene work with a crazy idea but then to make a whole score work with a crazy idea is just that's the reason why people don't do it as commonly it seems like i agree well also you know a good example is like with me and aaron like on gemini i remember we had an entire score for that film that just 
didn't work. Like it was a great score. It's I still have it in a folder, and like people who have gone to the test screenings are like, "Dude, you got to email me the old Gemini score. Like, do you have it?" And I, what did I, it sound I, like? At the time, it was you know a lot of Gemini's inspiration was like these '90s VHS feelings, like very early '90s. And so we built a bunch of stuff that was very like synthy and VHS feeling, and and really interesting and steamy and kind of gritty and a i think it didn't help that right around that time stranger things came out which we were like oh this is going to be bad because even though our stuff is different than this it's going to get lumped it because we just knew by the time our movie came out there was going to be like six other scores that had been more derivative of that you know and ours mm. was close enough in a world tangerine dream wise and escape from new york wise that kind of stuff where we were like oh i don't know um and also it 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 just wasn't working it was great, but it was like the first opening, like now there's a great opening cue in Gemini as it pans down from the palm trees and there's sort of this trap beat and this steamy feeling. But previously it was, it, you would do, the score that was there made you feel like there was about to be a fucking Ferrari blazing past and there was going to be a car chase or something. You know, it was like, dun, 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 dun. it just felt crazy. And the movie never really went there in terms of the pacing. And so we had this moment where it was like literally Aaron pacing around and I was like laying on my back in the editing suite. And we were just like, ah, what's it going to be? And we just decided to like take the entire score and throw it away and start over again. Did that premiere at South by? I have no idea. Because I don't remember. I I was at a early screening at South by, but I don't know if it started there. But that's the only time I've ever met Aaron Katz. And I remember meekly going up to him and being like, I like Quiet City a lot. Thanks for making movies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I don't really remember the ride of it, but I do remember being proud of that Gemini score mainly because it was the first real test of the like, yeah, it's easy to make scores with your friends, but what happens when like the rubber hits the road and you have to like throw it all away? And it was like, and we made it work. It worked out. <laughs> I, I live off test screens. I know they get such a bad rep, but like, you, it's the only time you're like, look, we got somebody else here that's like, you you, you felt the reaction in the room. You know if it, this thing's working or not. You may not be able to pick it out, why it isn't working, but you know it is or isn't working. It, it's so weird with a test screening because often the things you learn in a test screening as a composer, editor, director, you know before the talk back. You know before the happens. what was you that? You don't even need to you can you know sort of the vibe before the talk back even happens. You don't even have to read the cards. It's weirdly this thing where like as soon as the lights go down, you can just feel the vibe in the room and how it's being received and it's I, I think really helpful. Um I had one last her smell question. Uh the Brian Adams song was that I mean was I assume that was just in the script already. That was Yeah, that was something that Alex was really passionate about and I like recorded a little t- tutorial for Lizzie about how to re- play it on piano and she just killed it. Did you have to teach uh, Nick Offerman guitar? Jeremy yeah, did that. Jeremy, the bandmate who I said wrote that guitar part. Uh-huh. Mainly because, uh, you know, I may have played guitar a lot in my life. I am still a shitty guitar player. I'm like the perfect example of somebody who both at piano and guitar, I play just well enough to accomplish exactly what I need to accomplish and nothing beyond that. Okay. Um, moving on to the TV stuff, you've got, I mean, you're working on some cool stuff. Like, I, I see a teacher, the uh, the TV show adaptation, and Sorry for Your Loss. Yeah. Like, you did, oh, how many episodes of the OA did you do? I just did the series finale, the very last one. I mean, what's that like produce, or having to produce that much more content? I mean, I enjoy it, honestly, because the filmmaking process can be so, like, bloated or, you know, go on forever. It's just a little bit less clear, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially depending on the scale of the process. And that I kind of like the, um, that maybe it's the OCD part of me, but I enjoy going, spotting a locked episode on a Wednesday and having to, you know, have a revision uh, or, like, delivered essentially a week later. You Are know, it's like... Do you, do you have to, like... Um... I mean, is it something where you're reusing a lot of the same cues over and over and just modulating them differently? All the leitmotif stuff you were talking about that you'd have to... Uh... You no, know, I, I wish it were true. I mean, it is sort of true. It happens a little bit, but maybe I just have bad luck and get shows that, that don't do that as much. But um, that's that's at least how they pitch it to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I mean, by season two, yeah, it gets better. But, you know, you got to remember that now, like, you know, 
because of Netflix, stuff doesn't go four or five seasons anymore, really. So that is definitely true by season three, four, five, six, you know, where you're just reusing music. But when a lot of these shows only go for two seasons, it, it's tough. Well, it's funny. The, the examples you made earlier of like commonly using cues, granted, it's a few years ago, but you, like under the skin. And I, I know I've used the Nick score a few times with Cliff Martinez. Yeah. And like you recognize saying things coming up, but at the same time, obviously, it's like just such a load of content that he's having to uh, having to produce. Um, yeah, I mean, I it is nice in that you don't overthink every single cue. And if you're working with the right collaborators, it's just like you get to explore more minutia narratively as a filmmaker and a writer and a director. You can, you know, as long as the producers don't drive you totally crazy, you can do the same composing wise where you can just sort of like cast a broader net. You know what I mean? And do more rhythmic long form stuff. And it can it can be good depending on the scenario. Well, um, I, I think that's all I got. I just want to thank you. It was an absolute pleasure to like talk to you about some of this stuff. Like your, totally. your, Some of the work you're doing, the work you're doing with some of these directors is really just on, on the pulse of something really, really cool right now. Dude, I really appreciate it. It means a lot. Especially coming from an, an editor. It's a high compliment. Yeah. Keegan, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. All right, man. Thanks, man. Thank you.